Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And then turning on to Acts chapter 13 on page 1107, 1107. And to start at um, chapter 13, verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them and returned to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, The synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conflict conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one, no. But he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. 
brothers, children of, Israel, of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to consider in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. <clears throat> then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of, the Lord, of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, my thanks to the band for, for leading us uh, tonight and for Pete as well. And thanks to you for coming. It's always uh, better to be standing here with people in front of me than uh, not. 
Uh, we're going to turn to, uh, back to uh, Acts chapter 13, looking at um, the last in our sort of little series following uh, Easter at how um, uh, the apostles uh, preached about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus uh, to those uh, first unbelievers to become believers. You might also find it useful as you turn in Acts chapter 13, uh, page uh, 1107 is the page number to dig out uh, the little handout so you can see where we're going in the next few moments as well. And let me pray for us. Now, Father, we've sung of you being uh, the one who reigns on high. We've thought about the Lord Jesus being the saviour. We pray that uh, misconceptions and misunderstandings about who you are and what you do and what your gospel is really all about may be ironed out today as we look at Acts 13, that we would have a clarity uh, that perhaps we've never had before. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, may I suggest to you uh, this evening, and uh, you can see if you uh, want to go with this or not, may I suggest to you that the most common misunderstanding about the Christian gospel today is that it is in some way an attempt to get people to live a good life. Let me tell you why I come to those conclusions. Uh, people say to me things like this, look, you don't have to go to church to be a good person. Uh, behind that statement is all sorts of things, but it's often the thought that Christianity is kind of a moral framework by which to live. The thought then is that Christianity is an attempt to get everyone to be kind and charitable and to help the marginalised and the poor in society, in short, to make the world a better place. And so people say to me, I can do that without having any church or religious affiliation. And of course, they are absolutely right. There are many people, people of, of all faiths and of none, who try to live a decent life and help others. Uh, Caroline and I have a friend who has given himself in the most sacrificial way to work in extraordinarily difficult situations in some of the poorest parts of the world in order to bring the best medical care he can to people in great need. He has passed up the opportunity to earn considerable sums of money and have a very comfortable life for himself because he wants to help others. You don't have to be a Christian or have any faith of any kind in order to do that. So no, you don't have to go to church to be a good person, but that's not what the Christian gospel's about. And then this misunderstanding that Christianity is all about being a good person is expressed to me when I take funerals, sadly, desperately. I've said this before, but a tearful widow will say of her husband, he wasn't a religious man, but he was a good man, so he's in heaven now, isn't he? Now, can you hear what is behind that? Here's the belief that Christianity teaches you that you have to be good to get to heaven. And if you are good, then you will. But that is not the Christian gospel at all. And then sometimes this, this what I'm suggesting is the single biggest misunderstanding about Christianity. Sometimes this misunderstanding about the Christian gospel comes as a poke in the ribs when we Christians fail. To my shame, I remember when I worked in the newspaper industry saying something that wasn't very kind. I can't remember what I said, but I do remember, quick as a flash, a colleague saying to me, and you call yourself a Christian. And it hurts when people say that. But I understand why they say it. 
Because if people think that we Christians are saying that we are good people, then of course we're in the firing line for a right roasting when we don't live up to it. You say you're good and that Christianity is about being good. Well, you haven't lived that, have you? And you call yourself a Christian. But again, that is to misunderstand the Christian gospel. The reason I'm a Christian is precisely because I can't be good. And many of you will say the same. For some months, uh, when I was 19 turning 20, I tried my best to be good and I couldn't do it. If the Christian gospel is about being good, it wouldn't be very good news at all. And I, for one, would never have turned to it. Because I can't live a good life, and if you're honest with yourself, neither can you. All this to illustrate my suggestion that the biggest single misunderstanding about Christianity today is that the Christian gospel is a religion which tries to get people to live a good life. And I might even venture to suggest that that is quite possibly the biggest misunderstanding about the Christian gospel across the entire world now, both now and down through the centuries. And I begin like this because it was certainly a misunderstanding that was alive and kicking in the first century and alive and kicking in the synagogue that the Apostle Paul preached in, in Acts chapter 13. Uh, if you've got the Bible in front of you, you'll see that in verse 14, Luke takes us into the synagogue in a town called Pisidian Antioch. In verse 15, as we walk into that synagogue, we see what was done in synagogues up and down the country. Uh, The scriptures were read and studied that day. And as we read on, we're given details that help us to see that this was an impressive gathering of sincere Jewish people. I mean, you know, these people would not often have been called hypocrites, it seems to me, because in verse 16, Paul addresses not only those who were ethnic Jews, born Jewish, but also Gentiles who worship God. So this synagogue had attracted people from outside the Jewish faith to become worshippers of God. That doesn't happen if you're just a bunch of hypocrites. Here was a gathering who took outreach seriously and who were quite clearly doing something right to attract others in. On this particular Saturday, having heard the scriptures read, the synagogue rulers invited Paul and his companions to preach. And so, verse 16, Paul stood up, and I imagine he got out his iPad and found one of his favourite sermons, which was an overview of the Hebrew Scriptures, an overview of what we call the Old Testament. And I say that this was a favourite sermon of Paul because of something that Chris Green writes in his book, The Word of His Grace. And I've quoted, I put the quote on the handout if you want to follow along. Chris Green writes... Although Paul has visited synagogues before and will do so again, this is the only occasion when Luke tells us what he said. In a consistent pattern whereby Luke tells us only once what was said in a context that recurred many times, we're left to conclude that this was Paul's normal evangelistic sermon in a synagogue. I think that's right, and that's why I've assumed that this was Paul's favourite sermon whenever he spoke in a Jewish synagogue, which is why he had it on his iPad. He'd just bring it up and he'd start again. And in this sermon, Paul explained how Jesus Christ was the fulfilment of the Jewish scriptures. And here's the key thing, that through Jesus Christ and through him alone, salvation could be certain. What we're going to see in a moment is that all through this sermon, he basically says one thing, and uh, you'll see the conclusion in verses 38 and 39, just over the page if you're still with me. 
Look at the conclusion after he's preached this long sermon. Verse 38, therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from everything that you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Do you see the the conclusion of the sermon? Paul, first he says something brilliant. You can be forgiven through Jesus. He says you can be justified, you can be put right with God through Jesus Christ. But do you see, crucially at the end, verse 39, Jesus gives you something that you cannot get through keeping the law of Moses, through keeping God's law. So this whole sermon is building up to this one thing. In this sermon, Paul says Christianity is not about trying to live a good life. That's his conclusion. Now let's walk through the sermon for the next few moments. And again, these notes, these points are on the notes if you're following along. First, salvation by faith, not works. That is, not trying to do a good, not trying to live a good life. Salvation by faith, not works, is the message of the law and the prophets. You'll see this in verses 17 to 20. Now, as I read verses 17 to 20, we're back on page 1107 again. As I read verses 17 to 20, listen to how Paul emphasizes that what the Bible first writes is all about what God does, not what I do. Let me read from verse 17. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their country for, uh, their, their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. That is a pretty impressive sermon, by the way. A summary of the first 450 years of Israel's history in under 20 seconds. Don't you wish there were more sermons like that here? And yet, brief as it is, Paul is able to show how Israel's history is about God's saving action. Do you see it there? God chose Israel. God made Israel prosper. God overthrew the Canaanite nations. And God gave Israel the promised land. And crucially, note in verse 18, God endured the conduct of Israel for 40 years in the desert. Paul says brilliantly in just, uh, in, in just those, I, it takes 20 seconds to read that, in just 20 seconds, Israel's history, the first 450 years of Israel's history is of God showing great kindness to Israel and even when Israel didn't deserve any of it, even when Israel were thoroughly rebellious and sinful. In other words, even when Israel did not live a good life, God stepped in and chose them and saved them and made them prosper. So the first 450 years of the Bible, of Israel's history, was not a message of God telling his people to live a better life. It was a message that despite their sinfulness, God saved them anyway. That is the message of the first five books of the Bible, which contain the law of Moses. And the message is not try and live up to God's standards. It is not try and live a better life. I think this is really important for us as Christians to leave. I wonder how often when we read, when we read, knowing the gospel, when we read the first five books of the Bible, do we end up thinking it's telling us to try harder? It's not. If you're reading it that way, you've misunderstood it, says Paul. When I was in London, I met with a young mum who came to see me about having her baby baptised. After we'd uh, chatted for a while, I asked her about her Christian background and as she spoke, she, she choked back the tears and she said to me, I used to go to church, but no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't keep the Ten Commandments and so I stopped going. 
And I thanked her for being honest. And then I said to her, if that's what you think Christianity is about, I'm not surprised that you gave up. I would have given up too. See, here it is, as clear as day. The message of God's people is that they are rebellious and bad and God steps in to save them anyway. It's not about being good. Because you can't be good. Second, Paul says in this sermon, salvation by faith comes through a given saviour. This is verses 20 to 23. And having done the first 450 years of, of, of uh, history, he then goes from the book of Judges through to, well, uh, to Samuel. Uh, to, because he talks about David in this next section. Uh, have a look at verse 20. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Now, the mention of judges, of the judges, probably doesn't mean so much to us. Maybe to some of you, you might be steeped in the Old Testament, but for most of us not. But, of course, to the Jews who Paul was writing to in the synagogue, they knew all about it. They knew the Old Testament. They knew what the book of Judges was about. And I think it's probably worth us, we'll just do this one cross-reference. Keep um, something in Acts 17, we're going to, uh, Acts 13, we're going to come back to it. And come with me to Judges um, chapter 2, page 244, just so you can see how Judges works. I put a couple of these references on the handout. I'm not even sure I've got the best references, but you can read through the book of Judges for yourself sometime. You'll see the same pattern again and again all the way through. And it's, it's both terrible and wonderful all in one go. Page 244. Judges chapter 2 and verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the people of Israel, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived, for the Lord had compassion on them and they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people turned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I'll no longer drive out, and so on and so forth. Now, what happens all the way through, it's probably not the best reference, but you'll see the pattern all the way through the book of Judges, and it goes like this. God's people reject God. As a result, they come under God's judgment in the form of foreign nations around them, oppressing them. Eventually, after they've been crushed by these foreign nations, they cry out to God, and he would raise up a judge for them to deliver them from their enemies. But in no time at all, we see them returning to their old ways, turning away from God. It's the same pattern right through the book. And Paul deliberately mentions the book of Judges so that we're going, yes, that's the message of the scriptures. Not live a good life and you'll save yourself. The message is we're sinful and rebellious and we need God to send someone to save us. And that's the message of the Bible from Judges through to David, King David. That's what he says in, back, turning back now to Acts chapter 13, page 1107. That's the next bit of his sermon. Acts chapter 13, verse 20. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. 
Verse 23 is now the little conclusion of this part of Paul's sermon. And Paul says, Israel's history promises that God will bring a descendant of David, of King David, to be a saviour. Do you see? And Jesus is that saviour. Verse 23, the saviour Jesus. So once again, it is clear that the Christian gospel is not that we need to try harder. God did not bring us a teacher to give us a set of rules to try and keep. No, he brought us a saviour, someone to save us because we can't keep the rules. And that is the message of all the, the prophets as we see in the next section of Paul's sermon. Third then, salvation comes through a saviour, is the message of the prophets. And this is verses 24 to 26. Now in these verses, Paul points to John the Baptist. And I think the point of mentioning John the Baptist is that John the Baptist is kind of the last of the Old Testament prophets. And so what John taught is the summary of all the prophets. So he's brought us up to King David at this point, and then he's going to tell us what all the prophets teach after that. And verse 24, do you see, John preached repentance and baptism. Two brilliant words for the, 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 the big message of the Bible. Repentance says you need to turn back to God because you've gone away from him, you're rebellious. And baptism says you're dirty and you need cleansing. I love it when we have baptisms here in church. I love it when we baptise babies. I love it when we baptise adults. It's particularly striking when we baptise adults. It's thrilling to see them stand up and publicly identify with Jesus for his uh, for, because of his death on the cross for them. It's fantastic people do that. But imagine me saying to someone, I'd like you to stand up in front of hundreds of people on Sunday and publicly admit that you are dirty, that you are filthy, not physically, but morally and spiritually. I would like you to do that. I don't think many people would do it, but that's actually what people are doing when they get baptised. They're saying, I'm a dirty person. Anybody want to be baptised, by the way? Come and see me afterwards. Come and tell everybody you're a dirty person. But it's crucial, you see. They're saying, I can't live a good life. I have a history that I'm completely ashamed of. And so I'm turning to Jesus to give me the deep cleansing that I need. That's the message of the prophets. Once again, do you see, it's not I'm a good person and it's not even I'm making an attempt to clean up my own life. Not that. John the Baptist, representing all the Old Testament prophets, preached the Christian gospel of salvation through a saviour. And verse 25, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus as that saviour. And so Paul concludes the third part of his sermon in verse 26. Brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles. Remember, there were two groups of people who were there before him in the synagogue. And he says to them, it doesn't matter whether you're ethnic Jews descended from Abraham, if you can trace your lineage back to Abraham, or if you're a Gentile, in that case, anybody else in the world, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're an ethnic Jew descended from Abraham or a Gentile who's become a God-fearing person, it doesn't matter who you are, halfway through verse 26, you need the message of salvation. It is the consistent message of the Christian gospel. It is right through the Bible. We need to be saved through Jesus. And so having given us a history of the Old Testament, Paul then gives us a history of the life, 
of Jesus to demonstrate how Jesus' death and resurrection was a fulfillment of the Old Testament. So the fourth point on the sheet there, Jesus is the promised saviour. This is verses 27 to 37. And right through this section, Paul keeps quoting Old Testament scriptures to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Or he shows us aspects of Jesus' life to show us that he fulfilled the Old Testament. Let me just show you that quickly. Verse 27. In condemning Jesus, the people of Jerusalem fulfilled the words of the prophets. Verse 29. When they carried out all that was written about him. See, all that was written about him. Now look at verse 32. We tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us. As it is written in the second psalm. Verse 34. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words from Isaiah 55. Verse 35. So it is stated elsewhere in Psalm 16, to be precise. All the way through these verses, Paul is showing those in the synagogue, those who love to read the scriptures, Paul is showing them that the scriptures they love to read were fulfilled in the life, death, and supremely in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a couple of details that I love in these verses that I'll point to and then we'll be nearly done. Look again at verse 27. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Now, now, this is the most remarkable verse. The, the rulers of Israel and the people of Israel's capital city, Jerusalem, didn't recognize Jesus as the promised Christ. There's nothing surprising there, but read on to the next bit of verse 27. Yet, in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Do you see what's going on in that verse? Jesus uh, walked onto this earth and claimed to be the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. He said, I'm the Christ, I'm the one you're waiting for. They didn't think he was, so they wanted to do away with him. But end of verse 27, in their very condemning of him, they were fulfilling the very scriptures that Jesus said he would come to fulfill that they didn't agree he'd come to fulfill. Isn't it brilliant? And we see exactly the same in verse 28. By asking Pilate to have Jesus executed, so verse 29, they were simply carrying out what was written. Here were people trying to get shot of Jesus by having him killed because of his claim to be the Christ and in doing so, their actions were actually proving that Jesus was the promised Christ of the Old Testament. And not only was Jesus' death prophesied by the scriptures proving him to be the Christ, but, verse 30, God raised him from the dead. We see the same in verse 37. God raised him from the dead. So God raising Jesus from the dead... And people seeing him risen from the dead, verse 31, all shows, along with the Old Testament scriptures, that he really is the Christ. And what you get in the next few verses are more uh, verses from the Old Testament quoted to demonstrate that God always said that the Christ would not just suffer and not just die, but also be risen from the dead. And then he says at the end of all of that, having gone through the first 450 years of the uh, Old Testament and then from Judges to King David and then all the prophets and then Jesus' life, after all that, he concludes what he wants us to learn, verse 38, you can be forgiven your sin through Jesus Christ. That's the message of the Christian gospel. 
Verse 39, Jesus brings justification where the law of Moses cannot. Justification to be declared right with God. That's the message of the Christian gospel. End of verse 39, you can't get right with God by keeping the law of Moses. It's not about trying to live a good life. It is by faith in Jesus Christ that you can get right with God. What a wonderful message. I brought this along tonight. It's a... uh, uh, Well, it's a a book, as you can see, it's a a record book of of all my sin. Uh, Well, it's not all my sin, because I've got a few more volumes of this back home. Uh, I've called it The Record of the Wrongs of a Justified Sinner. In this book, it is recorded times I've said and done things that hurt others. Uh, Times I've deliberately gone against God. Times that I've put myself and my interests first and before the interests of others In this book, there are things that go on behind closed doors in the Williams household. And in this book, there are even things that go on in my mind that even some of the rest of the Williams household know nothing of. Here it all is, recorded in this book and a few other volumes as well. Uh, You you might think it's a bit risky of me to bring this here tonight. You might wonder if if I leave it lying around after the service, would I even dare to do that in case you picked it up? I don't know, with your interest, you might be one of those people that isn't nosy at all. If somebody was saying this to me, I'd want to see what was in it. Well, if you are interested, I don't mind showing it to you right now. I will do that. Now, let me show you. There it is. Every single page. Absolutely blank. That's justification. And not that I'm perfect, but that before God, I'm declared perfect, clean, with a fresh slate and a new start every day. The law of Moses, God's law can't do that for me. If I follow God's law, I just have page after page after page after page of failure, of not living up to God's standard, of not actually even living up to my own, of failing people, of hurting people, of denying people, of living for myself, of just not being able to do it. That's what the law of Moses does for me. And if somebody begins to tell me that that's the Christian gospel, I'm going to run from it like a mile because it's miserable. And it will leave me miserable this day and tomorrow when I've tried again to live up to the standard and I can't manage it. Well, that's not the Christian gospel. God's law doesn't leave me justified, it leaves me condemned. But Jesus' death cleanses the person who turns to him in repentance and faith. That's the Christian gospel. That is gospel. That is good news. See, it's not about trying to live a good life, and that is quite possibly the greatest misunderstanding about Christianity today. The Christian gospel is very good news. So, How do you think he ends? So take care, verse 40. So take care that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. What's he saying here? Verse 41, look you scoffers, wonder and perish for I'm doing, going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. It's a brilliant ending. 
All the way through his sermon, Paul has been saying, look at what the Old Testament say about Jesus. Look at what the Old Testament says about Jesus. Look, it's going to say this wonderful gospel of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And then he says, but take care, take care, take care that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. Because the prophets not only spoke about Jesus, but they also spoke about the responses that Jesus would get. The prophets spoke about some people who would scoff at this message about Jesus Christ and forgiveness and justification. And the prophet said people will scoff at it and they'll reject the Christ. And the prophet said, verse 41, that those people who reject the Christ would perish. And so at the end of the sermon, Paul says, take care. Take care that what the prophet said in that sense doesn't happen to you. Don't reject the Christian gospel. Don't reject the Christian gospel because you think it's all about living a good life and you think, I don't need Christianity to do that. Don't reject the Christian gospel because you think, I'm a good person. I don't need Jesus. And don't reject the Christian gospel because you think it's just another stifling message which tells you to try and live up to an impossibly high standard. That's miserable. That's not the Christian gospel at all. So take care that you're not rejecting God's gift of a saviour, but rather take the gift. The gift of one who can cleanse you. The gift of one who can forgive you. The gift of one who can declare you right with God and give you a fresh start, a clean slate, today and every day for the rest of your life. Take that gift because it is a most wonderful gift. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you're not at all like the kind of God we make you out to be in our minds. You're not at all like the kind of God who demands impossible standards that we can't attain. You're not at all like the kind of God who would say, keep trying and maybe, perhaps, at the end of the day, I might accept you. Thank you, you're not like that at all. But thank you that you are the God who, despite everything that we are, says I love you and here is my son and the son loves you and he says I'll die for you thank you that you're the kind of God who is full of grace full of love ready to forgive and able to justify and we pray that we would rejoice in that if we've known that truth for a long time And that we would take care tonight that we don't reject it if we've never understood it before. And we pray that tonight we would uh, grab that gift and turn to you as if it's the most important thing in the world because it is. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.